Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi everyone, and welcome to Racing Lives. My name's Aurélie, Aurélie Donzelot. And in this podcast, I use motorsport as an excuse to chat to some of the most inspiring women I know. Each week brings a different guest and we discuss everything from career beginnings to what it's truly like to be involved in one of the fastest sports in the world. My guest today is a hugely experienced producer working for Formula One itself. She's a brilliant interviewer, trusted by Formula One drivers and team PRs alike. She's a relaxed professional that gets the job done with a smile and it's hugely appreciated throughout the paddock. She's also an incredibly knowledgeable food enthusiast, using the little spare time we have around races to research cuisines from around the world and share her findings in the brilliant F1 Foodie Instagram account. She's a trusted friend, a positive influence and one of my favourite people to catch up with whether it's five minutes in the middle of the paddock or significantly longer if a glass of wine and a plate of good food are involved. That's less often, but when it does, it's great. My guest today is the uber-talented Amy Overy. Who is this person? (laughs) It's you! (laughs) Oh my goodness, what lovely words. But it's 100% oh. you. I'm blushing a bit now. <laughs> wow, now that is an introduction. Thank you so much. Thank you for being my first guest, by the way. Uh, when and where did your racing life actually begin? My racing life started 20 years ago when I answered an advert at the back of Autosport magazine for um, a television production assistant. And a friend of mine actually spotted it because I didn't buy Autosport. It wasn't sort of one of the things I bought, you know, Heat magazine and that kind of thing. And I was working in radio at the time in London. I was working at Kiss FM, which could not be further away from Formula One or sport in general. Obviously it's a dance music station. And I had the best time there. I really, really enjoyed it. And that was when I, I moved to London. Um, but I always loved sport. And so for a while at KISS, I I did some moonlighting for another radio station um, called Liberty, which was owned weirdly by Mohammed Al-Fayed. Random. But it was 
very much focused uh, on women. That was their demographic. That's how they got their license. And he also owned Fulham Football Club. So randomly, this medium wave radio station ended up with the full radio broadcast rights for all Fulham home games, <laughs> randomly. And they needed a female co-commentator. So while I was working at KISS, I, I put myself forward and ended up co-commentating at football matches um, <laughs> at Craven Cottage in London, which wasn't that far from where I was living. So that kind of satisfied the, the sports broadcaster in me while still working at, at KISS FM with the music. And after a while of doing this, and I was terrible, by the way, I was absolutely awful. I worked with a really, really talented um, commentator called Jim Proudfoot, who is incredibly experienced and has worked for years on Sky Sports and, and other um, you know, sports channels. And he would kind of do his bit and then he'd like nudge me and then it'd be my turn to react. And I was, oh, it was awful, really awful. In fact, I'd get shivers when I think about it. But it was also an amazing experience and I'm so glad that I did it. But that kind of gave me the courage to sort of explore sport more as, um, as a career in broadcasting, I think. And when my friend kind of put this advert under my nose and said, oh, you'd be brilliant at this, I thought, oh, okay well I'll give it a go and I remember it said and this you know back in 99 this was still quite unusual you had to hand write a covering letter wow oh my goodness so I tried several times to write a covering letter introducing myself to go with my CV and I couldn't do it I kept screwing them up putting them in the bin so I had a big glass of wine and then I just wrote it and I thought right well I've got two chances and I sent it off and nobody was more surprised than me when I got um, an invitation for an interview. And I, I went, I was terrified. And I went to Biggin Hill, which is where Formula One management were based. Yeah. Airfield, thinking, this is so weird. What, what, why are they here? This is really strange. And I had my interview and um, thought I'd massively messed it up. And three weeks later, I was at Silverstone for my very first Formula One Grand Prix weekend as... Um, as a sort of junior TV production assistant. And, and it kind of went from there, really. That's amazing. It was a bit of a sort of, a bit of a strange route, I think. It was, I'd, I'd, I came to Formula One quite late. My dad is from South Wales, so he was very much into rugby. Rugby was a big thing in our house. And I hugely disappointed him when I started to be, show signs of being a football fan. I used to do quite a lot of work at um, Coventry City, football club for the local radio station where I worked uh, at the time and um, and then sort of came to Formula One quite late I'd probably say around 95 96 so not yeah. long before I ended up working in it really and I remember Damon Hill being champion and you know being British and that whole feel-good factor and I think that really sort of cemented my interest in the sport so to suddenly find myself working in it was 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 amazing but prior to that I think I've always just gone off and done like little side projects that interest me. I've never fully believed that your job should just be the be all and end all. So if, if something has interested me, I've, I've gone off and done it. And I found out randomly when I was working at the radio station in Coventry that Gordon Strachan, who was the then Coventry city manager, was really good friends with Eddie Jordan. And that Eddie Jordan, perversely, was um, a huge Coventry city fan. Who knew? Yeah. Really strange. And I thought, well, here's a, a major opportunity here. I, I could do a little radio documentary to go on the local radio station about this because this is just so weird. So I contacted Gordon Strachan 
when I was at the training ground doing something else and said, do you fancy just having a, a quick chat about sort of, you know, Formula One and your friendship with Eddie and him coming to matches? And he was like, yeah, yeah. So I did that. And then I thought, well, how on earth am I going to get to talk to Eddie Jordan? At that point, I wasn't working in Formula One. I was still living in Coventry. And um, I managed to blag my way somehow into the Jordan car launch at the London Palladium, just off Oxford Street that year. And I'm not quite sure how I did it. I think I must have got credentials just from working for the radio station. And I went along and I did a few questions for the radio station. And then I just asked him loads of questions about um, about Coventry City. And from that, just made a really, really short radio documentary that went out on the local station. And, and actually, that helped and counted towards when I was interviewed at Formula One, sort of showing an interest, showing initiative and helped me sort of get a foot in the door I think and and from then that's kind of all I've, I've worked in motorsport ever since. But yeah but I can understand why that would be appealing though I mean you've got someone coming in or, or we know what it's like when we're advertising for jobs in F1 you get a lot of applications you know it's something that's like very glamorous and very enticing and nobody quite knows how it works if you're not in it um, so then if someone's actually gone and made a documentary just just because they could <laughs> like yeah come in this is amazing I think I think I've always just thought oh well, why not just I think when an opportunity presents itself you can do one of two things you can just go oh I, I oh I shouldn't do that I can't do that um that's not for me or or you can just think oh stuff it what's the worst that can happen and I remember thinking when I went to the Jordan launch hold it you know Eddie won't talk to me um I perhaps won't get in perhaps these credentials aren't aren't right and I'm going to get thrown out I'm going to get found out and actually none of that happened and it was all fine and I did it and I came away thinking well see what happens when you just sort of you know seize an opportunity really so that was yeah that was really good fun I enjoyed doing that that's brilliant. That's absolutely brilliant. You touched about being a fan of motorsport, actually being becoming a fan of it quite late. What's your actual earliest memory of motorsport or, or Formula One? I think my earliest memory was when I was a student. I went, um, so after I uh, worked at the radio station in Coventry, I did my work experience there. You know, when you're 15 and you get to go and work yeah. in the real world for two weeks. I always wanted to be a writer. and it's really difficult trying to find kind of relevant work experience for, for writing particularly. I didn't really want to go and work for the local newspaper. I wanted to do more features. And then somebody said, oh, the local radio station quite happily take people. Why don't you apply there? It's not quite what you want to do, but it would be really interesting. And so I did. And they took me on for those two weeks. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it and immediately kind of changed tack um, in terms of my interest and where I wanted to go I knew I wanted to be in broadcast media and I loved working in radio and I every kind of holiday that I would get even after the work experience they would take me back I'd go and work on road shows handing out CDs and things and just you know completely free I'd get paid in CDs and I just really enjoyed sort of being involved and sort of um, being somebody that they would call in to, to help out on certain events so so with that in mind, I then applied to do media production at Salford University, just outside of Manchester, which it was a HND in media production. And it was brilliant. It was a hugely sort of practical, hands-on course. And I did that for two years. 
Um, and then in my holidays, when I went home to Coventry, I used to work in a bar uh, called the Dog and Trumpet, which I loved. And some of the people that I worked with are still some of my really good friends to this day. So there I was, sort of 18, working behind a bar and loving it. And we had the best boss. The guy who ran the, the bar, a guy called Gus, was incredible. He was he never believed the customer was right. If if ever if ever any of his staff were getting grief, he would just completely lose it and chuck the customer out. He was amazing. He looked after us. And then one year he said, um, hey, guess what? I've uh, I've got the license to run the bar at Silverstone at Cops Corner for the British Grand Prix. Who's in? And we were like, me, me, me. I want to do it. I want to do it. So I'd never been to a race. Um, I'd only ever seen Grand Prix on TV at that point, never been to Silverstone. Like I said, my parents weren't really into motorsport. So it just it was up to me to sort of find out about it. And, um, and Gus said, right, okay, well, what we're going to do is we're going to camp there. So we camped in a field just behind the helicopter enclosure. We're going to have a barbecue every night. And we are, you know, we're going to serve people at the British Grand Prix. And I thought this was brilliant. It was just the most amazing holiday job. So I didn't actually live too far from Silverstone. It's probably only about 45 minutes from Coventry. So we all went. And I remember it being a beautiful weekend as well. I remember the, the weather being perfect for camping. Um, and as we know, Silverstone isn't always that nice, which is why I think my memories are such positive ones. And we had a ball. We just, I loved it. I loved the atmosphere. I loved the fans. And I just remember on race day, where the bar was, there was a stand just in front of it. And just, I think, as the cars are coming around for the formation lap, we all abandoned the bar and we all just ran up to the top of this stand to watch the start of the Grand Prix. And, of course, back then, different engines, different sound. And I just remember the goosebumps I felt when the cars pulled away for the first lap. And I think from then I was just hooked and, and that was it. So that that was my first sort of proper crystal clear memory of, of motorsport, really. That's amazing. That's wicked. Would you say you chose this or did it choose you? Ooh. Um, I think maybe a bit of both. I think by being quite proactive and going off and doing all my little side projects whilst I was working in London gave me the confidence and perhaps the experience to uh, you know, like you said, you see a job advertising Formula One, you think, oh, my God, I'm never going to get that. There must be thousands of people applying for that. There's no way that I'm going to get that job. So I think the fact that I would not have seen that advert had my friend not put it in front of me, because like I said before, autosport wasn't something I bought. I, I like Formula One, but not to the point that I was, you know, buying magazines about it. Um, I, I think a little bit of fate. I think the kind of stars aligned a little bit. I'd put the work in, but then this opportunity was presented to me. And I just remember thinking, well, I've got two chances. So I knew that I wanted to move away from music radio as much as I loved it. Um, I had some great times there, really, really enjoyed it. Music's a, a big, big passion of mine. But I kind of wanted something a bit meatier, really. I wanted something that I could really sort of get involved in. The music um, was quite quite a close shop in a way. I was sort of a bit on the periphery. Whereas sport, I kind of felt that I could, I could very much get involved. 
And the great thing about joining a company at sort of almost like an entry level job, like a TV production assistant, is that there are lots of different ways you can go. You can specialize in different things. You can show an aptitude for one thing. Um, and I was very lucky in that Formula One, we we had um, uh, a head of department called Maladen, and he was always really supportive, actually. And whenever you used to have your performance review, he'd obviously you know talk about how the last six months had gone but then he'd always say what do you fancy doing what you know where do your interests lie do you want to do this forever or do you want to perhaps try something else out so he sort of encouraged you to think that you could really progress and you could change direction slightly but still within the company and within the sport so so that was brilliant and um he gave me my my opportunity in the in the pit lane as pit lane reporter I just said to him in one review, I said, well, I really enjoy doing interviews. I, I enjoy talking to people. I I quite fancy being a pit lane reporter, thinking he's going to laugh his head off. And he just went really quiet, and he just sort of cocked his head to one side, and he went, okay, Monaco. And I went, I'm sorry, what? And he said, Monaco, you can try in Monaco, see how you get on. And I went, oh, my God, what, really? He said, yeah, pit lane reporter. And at the time, it was live. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, what have I done? What have I done? This is ridiculous. But, I mean, all credit to him. He he saw that I had an interest and he gave me the opportunity. So for that, I am forever grateful. Um, so, so, yeah, and then it kind of evolved from there, really. What a start. Monaco pit lane is hard. I was so nervous. It was all like, so, so back then, Formula One was digital but it was in a very different incarnation than it is now and it wasn't actually available in the in the UK and it's kind of digital guys but it was all live so we were providing live interviews live pit lane reporting so I'd get counted in by a director and I was so nervous before doing my very first interview that I had to go and throw up because I was terrified because I I just knew that there was no going back and I'd asked for this. This was my this was my choice. And yet still I was so scared that um yeah, I went and I was I was sick before I did my first interview. And I remember picking, I remember sort of thinking, right, I need to go and interview somebody, and there was not really much happening. And so I thought I'm gonna have to go and talk to a team manager on the pit wall. Who can I choose? Who can I choose? And I remember thinking, I need to just choose somebody who's gonna be really kind and really nice and not give me a hard time, but not be sarcastic and not be mean. And so I chose Bobby Rahal, who was the boss at Jaguar Racing at the time, an American and incredibly friendly. And so he was my very first interview. And then after that, I was like, right, I can do this. I can do this. And uh, and, and, and that was that really. That's amazing. I can, I literally can picture myself there. That's absolutely amazing. <laughs> so terrifying. It's just, yeah, it's d- doing it live is very different. You know, when I come and interview your drivers, um, I know it's going to get edited or I know that certain bits will get cut out. But doing it live, you've got one shot. And if you just get a driver just giving you a, you know, monosyllabic answer, you've got to then ask another question and then ask another question and you've only got one opportunity and if if they don't want to talk they won't want to talk and it's mortifying it really is it's horrible it's the most terrifying feeling and then all of a sudden your mind just empties as well and you have all these questions and they've gone and they're just looking at you because they've finished their answer and you think 
oh God, I don't actually know what I'm going to ask you. And that's happened to me so many times over the years. It's awful. It really is. Gets the adrenaline going. Yeah. And we've all, we, we, as observers, we all have the, the sympathy. We can see exactly what's going on, but they, they, they do not give you the sympathy. What would you say is your, the biggest misconception, not that I can say that word properly. Um, what would you say is the biggest misconception about your job? That it's very, very glamorous. I think, I often say to people, I wish I had the job you think I have, <laughs> because everybody expresses surprise that you don't fly business or first class everywhere, that you don't hang out every night with drivers, that you are not at parties all the time. And quite often I'm, you know, if it's been a really long day at the track, you're absolutely exhausted. And you you might go and grab room service or just sit in your bed with whatever snacks you've managed to pilfer from the <laughs> from the canteen at the track. And I've had dinners of, you know, crisps and <laughs> just maybe, I don't know, a squash Mars bar that I found at the bottom of my bag and been quite happy and grateful that I've actually got something to eat and just fallen asleep. I think um I think when I was younger I probably made more of the the opportunities to socialise, to go out. You know, I was 23 when I started. I was single. I was travelling the world. I was working in Formula One. I mean, my God, I was living the dream. And all of my friends and colleagues were, were the same, in the same situation. And, of course, you know, fast forward 20 years, we were married with children and mortgages and responsibilities. And we're all just a bit more tired <laughs> I think we're just more more tired and we go and we do our work and we work really hard but then all we want is just a really nice quiet dinner maybe a glass of wine and actually a good night's sleep <laughs> that sounds so lame but it's true so I think the biggest misconception is that we're all just on this constant worldwide touring party that is full of glamour and uh, that sort of thing and the truth could not be further from it my favorite one is uh when you explain to people that you get changed in the car park before getting in the car and, and drive to the airport oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> just all of that or finishing a race on a sunday night and running to get on the coach to get to the airport fly home in my uniform sometimes don't even get a time to get changed and then, you know, land, I'm on the M25 in my uniform thinking, God, I hope I don't break down. <laughs> I'm going to look like a right <laughs> And we smell so good by that stage. <laughs> oh, God, there's a lot of judicious spraying of um, deodorant and perfume in, in many sort of airport waiting rooms or just on the coach. It's, yeah, it's, it's fun. It's fun. Yeah. I actually, um, I haven't done that in a couple of years, but I used to decant a little uh, canister of Febreze so that I could, I could use deodorant for myself, but then I would also use Febreze for my, for my clothes if I had been in them for more than 24 hours. That is genius. How have I never thought of this? I'm taking that one. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to use that. What a great idea. Let's talk a little bit about success because... There's such an emphasis on it in motorsport. It's highly competitive, as we all know, at all levels and all areas. I actually find myself to be competitive when it comes to my job. And I'm not even in a competition with anybody. But how do you experience that in your 
in your area? You know, is it competitive or actually is it behind the scenes? Everyone works together and everyone helps each other out. How, you know, how does it translate in your area? I think having worked with um, a lot of the same people over such a long period of time, we are all very supportive of one another. And you spend more time with your colleagues sometimes than your own friends and family at home. And so you become very, very tight knit and um, you are one another's family when you're traveling. And so in that respect, I think we all support each other in that way. That being said, there is very much a competitive element, I would say, not necessarily within the, the company or the department in which you work. But I think there's, I think Formula One is one of those jobs that you know people would give their right arm to do. And there might always just be that little nagging voice in the back of your head. Well, you've been doing this a while now. You know, there's lots of lots of other people snapping at your heels. You better make sure you don't mess it up or, you know, you'll, you'll be out on your ear and somebody else will be doing your job. And, um, it, it, yeah, it can motivate you into feeling quite competitive and um, also slightly insecure, I think. I'm freelance as well. So I used to work for Formula One full time, but then got married and had my son and decided that the freelance way of life worked a lot better for us. But you still, you never lose that feeling that there's someone on your shoulder waiting to do what you do. And you have to remind yourself that um, that you must be okay at what you do, otherwise you wouldn't still be there and that those people would, would be doing your job. So it's really difficult. I think the way I define success, I think when... I think when you, because I don't really interview anymore, that was sort of when I first started and much more in producing. I think when you see a piece come together, how either you imagined it in your head or just when it really, really works and you see everything works together. So the drivers are on form and the format works and just the idea and the way the camera shot it and then how it's been edited and dealt with in post-production and then you see the final piece and you just go oh it looks brilliant I I made that or you know I was one of the people involved in that I think that is incredibly satisfying and that's probably how I define success now when we did the thing at your factory with Daniel and the school that's what I was thinking of we kind of, we weren't sure how it was going to be. There were so many variables. And let's face it, working with young children um, in that kind of environment, we weren't sure how it was going to be. We didn't want it to be too silly and we didn't want it to be too straight and educational. We, we wanted like a really healthy balance. And I think we achieved it. And it was just not knowing until the day when the kids turned up how they were going to be, what their personalities were like, how Daniel was going to be. I mean, he's always great and you know can turn it on even if he's not quite feeling it um but it all just worked it felt very natural and it felt very organic the way it all just flowed and then when I saw the final edit and the music they put to it and just the little cuts that they've done of Daniel I just thought yes nailed it and and I think you just feel you feel it you know when you've done a good one you also know when you've done a bad one or one that hasn't quite worked that hasn't quite hit the brief hasn't hit the mark and again it could be for it could be for any reason it could be that the driver wasn't feeling it or perhaps you hadn't thought the 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 concept through enough and I don't know perhaps equipment why something's let you down you've only got one camera when really you needed two to kind of have the variety of shots and that sort of thing so so yeah I think that's how I do it one of my favorite things that we did was a couple of years ago and actually 
um, it was working with the new digital team. We're quite small and we, we make all of the features for F1.com, for Instagram and the app. And it came about, we do it, we do a strand called We Are F1, where we take people who are passionate fans, but they they might be in various um sort of from different walks of life. And we'd been tipped off about this guy called Sharaf, who was a physiotherapist, is a physiotherapist living in Paris. And Sharaf's amazing and he comes to several races a year, but he is blind and he started to lose his sight at the time that Michael Schumacher was dominating. And when, and funnily enough, it was the race that I, my very first race was um, Silverstone 99 when Michael Schumacher crashed and broke his leg. And it was at that time that Sharaf was really starting to lose his sight due to this genetic condition that he has. And he wrote to Michael Schumacher and he actually got a reply. And he um, is just such a passionate fan. And so we thought he would be brilliant to interview for We Are F1. So we took him out to one of the stands uh, in Spain, in Barcelona, and we did a piece with him there. And interestingly, it was during FP1 on the Friday. And as the cars were going round, he could tell what car it was just from the engine sound and from the tyre squeal. And he was so knowledgeable. He was incredible. And then we just had this idea that it would be really good if we could get him to experience a Formula One car. And at the time, Formula One experiences were running the F1 two-seater and they had it in Spain. And so I went to see Paul Stoddart, who owns um, the the two-seaters, and said, we've got this idea. What do you think? Could we put Sharaf in the car? And he was like, yep, we've got a slot. And again, all the stars aligned and it was wonderful. And we did it as a surprise for Sharaf and he burst into tears and it was all incredibly moving and emotional. But he he got every every aspect of that shoot was just so lovely and so feel good and um, in, in quite an altruistic way, but also just in a, he was such a passionate fan and to get him in a car and to experience what it felt like to be driven by a, an ex-Formula 1 driver around a track. And he knew the track so well. And he he literally gave a running commentary the whole way around. He knew exactly what corner he was on and when he was down the main straight and possibly what gear the driver was going into. And we, we recorded all the commentary and he was spot on. And the, the driver said, I think it was Zolt Baumgartner, said, I've never known any any passenger to have your level of knowledge. You know this track inside out. And and it was incredible and it was all very moving. And even Paul Stoddart, who's a hardened Aussie, had a tear in his eye at the end. And that piece was so beautifully dealt with when it was edited that it wasn't kind of voyeuristic. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like a pity piece. It was just a real celebration of somebody who was a passionate, passionate fan and giving him an experience of a lifetime. And I'm really proud of, of that piece that we did. That was a success. I remember every single part of that when it was shown, every single little out bit, the full video, the bit when he went in the car. I remember speaking to Will Buxton, who was involved as well, when when it was happening and how much he was buzzing. And yeah, I can tell you 100% it all came across. It was it was one of my favourite things that Formula One did at that time. It really was. I think it's one of the favourite my favourite things that I've done as well since working as a producer, definitely. It just felt right. Every element of it felt felt spot on. Mm. I love it. I love it when a plan comes together. <laughs> and then that's the thing, because you have ideas, and we have ideas all the time, but sort of facilitating those ideas and making them come alive isn't always that easy. 
and other times um they fall really flat or we just decide to abandon it because actually we can't quite see how it's going to work and you're reliant on so many factors and <laughs> nine times out of ten the most important factor is the driver um so they have to be on it they have to have bought into it they have to be interested enough to get the required reaction and response and if you don't have that then you don't have a piece really no it's tough you touched on changing the way you worked so that it would suit your your family life better that's actually one of the things I wanted to ask you is how do you actually balance well basically your work because it's it's actually quite all-time consuming formula one it's not something that you can do uh, you know in five minutes easily just by default because it flies you around the world half the time how do you actually balance your work with the rest of your life and how do you manage your family and your friends expectations as well yeah it's quite tough when I used to work full-time for formula one I met my husband who also worked for a team as most people in relationships find their their partners in this job because they're the only people you ever see uh, and we got married after the Melbourne Grand Prix in 2002. We flew to Sydney and got married. We planned it. We didn't elope. And it shifted something in us. We were used to staying in different hotels and working for different companies within the sport. But we hadn't counted on how being married would change how that felt. And it suddenly felt really important that we should be together and it wasn't always possible. We were in, like I said, different hotels, working for different companies. He worked for a team, I worked for the TV side. And we very rarely saw each other and it was very stressful. And we took the decision later that season after a drunken night out to, um, to just hand in our notices when we got back to the UK. And when we were hungover but sober the next day, we were like, are we, are we doing this? Are we doing this? And we did. We handed in our notices and it was really scary because we'd just bought our first house together and taken on a big mortgage. And we were like, well, how on earth are we going to pay for it? And it's like, I'd be fine. What will we live on? Love, it will be fine. And it was really silly. But it all worked out. And we had about six years of a normal life, really, just not missing parties, not missing weddings just being a normal married couple having nice lazy weekends that sort of thing and then we had our son Milo who has just turned 12 and when he was about three years old my old director got in contact to us he knew I'd been freelancing I'd been doing little bits and pieces before Milo was born but in domestic motorsports stuff at Silverstone stuff at Donington Alton Park that kind of thing um, London to Brighton, vintage car run. That I loved it. Loved doing all nice. those kind of things. The classic car show, all sorts. Of yeah, things. love it. Yeah, it Rockingham. Just it just suited me. There were just maybe a day at the weekend, and then I'd be home. Brilliant job done. No getting on planes required. Um, and so my, because we are all so close knit and such good friends, we'd all stayed in touch. And my director contacted me and he said, um, "So we're looking for someone to cover maybe three races." this year wondered if you'd be interested I was like oh Milo was three I was thinking oh, oh I don't know I really don't know so Michael and my husband and I talked about it and he said you know you've never found anything that you love as much as Formula One he says I know I know you haven't as much as you enjoy the freelancing and being home I know that the Formula One is what you've always enjoyed so three races do it we'll be fine don't worry I was like, really? And he said, yeah, yeah. So I said yes. And I remember being at Heathrow Airport about to fly to Bahrain. 
looking at this departure board, looking for my gate, going, what am I doing? What? Oh, my God, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? I'm leaving my son. I can't do this. I haven't been doing it for years. This is ridiculous. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. And then I bumped into one of our cameramen who was still there from before. And he's like, all right. He had a few races off. <laughs> <laughs> Love him. Yeah, just a few. It shows you how people don't have the concept of time and that they just i have been missing for maybe eight, nine years, but I've just had a few races off in his eyes. And it was it was a bit like riding a bike when I got there. So so from there, from doing three races a year, that evolved and that was nine seasons ago. And I'm now up to 15 races a year, which for me and us as a family is my upper limit on how many I can do without um, social services being called and <laughs> divorce lawyers being consulted. Um, it just works. It works well. So my husband works full time. And the good thing about being freelance and doing that number of races is that I don't have to do anything in between. I maybe go to the office in London once every couple of weeks for a production meeting. But generally, once I'm home, I'm completely home. So in some respects, my job is a bit easier than if I did a 10 till 2 job locally, because I actually physically remove myself from home. And so Michael just has to deal with whatever goes on at home and then when I'm home I'm completely home I mean my son takes himself off to school but I was always doing the school run I'm there when he gets home from school um so he has a, a very normal life but yeah I think 15 races is is the upper limit for me there was one year when I was asked if I would do some Formula E as well and there were 10 of those and there were 10 Formula One 20 which people full-time like yourself do more but I it was it was we decided we'd suck it up and just do it for a season and see how it was again because an opportunity like that may not come along again but it was so hard it was really really hard Milo didn't deal very well with it um, I didn't deal very well with it um, and then we made the decision not not to do that again and that if we could survive by doing less then that's what we would do <laughs> it's tough it's tough and I know like like you say I yeah fine I do them all um and I have done Formula E races as well in between. But I, you know, my partner's on the race team. I don't have a, a home life that I don't leave anybody behind. But I miss a lot of birthdays and parties and weddings and, and stuff like that. But if I if there was someone left at home, I don't think, you, you know, it becomes a whole whole other decision to make. Definitely. I've had people say to me, oh, but you must really miss, really miss Milo. I, said, well, I do. But also I love my work and not in an obsessive way but just I've worked very hard over my career and over my life to get to this stage and I really enjoy what I do and I think I would be miserable if I didn't do it and therefore I would that wouldn't be great for home I would be really moody mum I really would and I yeah there is a part of you I think when you have a a baby when you think god you love that child and obviously you've embarked on a completely different stage of your life but after a while you go god is, is this it am i am i not going to get to do use my brain in a different way or all that training all that experience that i've had is that it do i just draw a line under it so i probably came back to it in the best way by just doing dipping my toe in and having the experience of just doing a few races a year and now he's older 
he'll be a teenager next year and probably yeah. needs me less um but yeah it is hard I've missed school plays I've missed first day of junior school that was really hard that was ouch really yeah hard. and I try very hard I'm very lucky my team are incredibly um supportive and flexible and they let me kind of choose my races depending on how it works for our family life which I've never had before and that's a wonderful wonderful thing and um so yeah I think I'm probably in the best scenario with how the races are for me and and also my husband and son have come out to races so it's not they've definitely um they've definitely reaped the benefits of my job they've come out to a couple of races so yeah, it's not it's not all bad for them they're not just at home pining for me that's a good way to keep them sweet definitely <laughs> exactly that here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST what's the what's your proudest moment and how did you celebrate it if you if you did manage to celebrate it I think my proudest moment was that very first race in Monaco as pit lane interviewer because up until then the only female pit lane interviewer was Louise Goodman who was working for IT legend who is an absolute legend and paved the way for so many of us and the thing about Louise is she was never allowed in the pit lane during races. She was only ever allowed up until qualifying. And for me, my proudest achievement, I still get a tingle when I think about it, I was the first female pit lane interviewer being able to report on races um, in the 
at that time a very male dominated industry there were no other female journalists and there there are so many more now and it's amazing to see it's fantastic it's just so normal but back then and I I remember pinching myself and just thinking this is a real moment um and in fact I was the first female full-time member of production in a, in the tv production department it had a couple of freelancers before but that no women and so to kind of do that and then 20 years on see how it is now um it was it's lovely I love seeing how it's all evolved so I think just um and it wasn't because people weren't um accepting of women or I've I've never found anything but utter respect and um support from everybody throughout Formula One I've you know I haven't experienced any horrible unkind things or misogynistic treatment at all but um I think it's just it's a very difficult sport to get into full stop and it's just taken time to evolve to this stage so to I felt very very proud that I'd ended up in that position really in the pit lane I don't know how I celebrated I probably just went out and had a glass of rosé somewhere <laughs> I wanted to give fair dues and cover the other end of the spectrum and ask you have you experienced what you see as your lowest point and then how did you overcome how did you overcome it I think being homesick is something you have to deal with and probably in that first season when I came back from from kind of stepping away from the sport for quite a while and having a toddler at home and being in fact no I can remember something quite yeah it was um the very first time I did Singapore and it was back to back with Japan and weirdly I don't do back to backs now that Milo's older but when he was younger I did them I don't know why I think because he had no concept of time then so for him two days two weeks two hours it didn't really matter he didn't know how long I was away for and he actually dealt with it probably a lot better when he was younger than perhaps he does even now because he now knows how long two weeks is so I try not to do back-to-backs if, if I can but I remember saying that I would do Singapore and Japan back-to-back -back, and it was the first time I'd done Singapore and I didn't anticipate how hard it was going to be with the um, the time and the trying to stay on European time, which I really struggled with. I just couldn't do it. I've always been a morning person and it didn't matter what I tried, blackout blinds, everything, eye mask, I would be up in the morning, probably something to do with having a young child and just being conditioned to it. I and I just felt like I needed to make the most of my morning so I'd be up I'd be having breakfast everybody else would be sleeping till midday one o'clock I'd be going for a swim feeling like I'm making the most but obviously on the flip side working till two three in the morning the following day and then slowly just watching my sleep over the week diminishing and so by the time the race was done and dusted, I was absolutely on my knees with the heat, the humidity being so far away from home. And then I think it hit me. I got back to our hotel and I was flying to Japan the following day. And I just thought, I've got another seven days of this. And I just lost it. I just completely lost it. I suddenly felt the most amazing wave of homesickness hit me, which hadn't happened before. So it really took me by surprise. I've been quite good at sort of compartmentalising. This is work. And when I'm working, I don't think about home. 
and when I'm at home I don't really think about work so to suddenly have that kind of sucker punch in my gut that I was so far away from home and I was exhausted but I wasn't going home for at least another week um, just hit me and I just completely dissolved and I was a mess and um, a very lovely colleague of mine kind of squirreled me up to my hotel room put a glass of wine in my hand and gave me a really big cuddle and I just got a really good night's sleep and then I got on the plane to Japan and I had um, a day to myself in Japan and I took myself off to Kyoto for the day which is something I'd always wanted to do and again an opportunity presented itself and I thought right I'm just going to have a day away from my colleagues away from people and that's the hardest thing as well you're always with people you're always with people you sit on a plane with people sometimes you share a room with people you're always on a headset chatting you eat all your meals together there's there's kind of no respite and after such a long, hot, busy week, I think I just had enough of everyone. So I took myself off for 24 hours and had the most amazing time wandering around Kyoto. And then I got back to where we were staying in Yokoichi and I thought, right, I can do this. I can do this. And I was, I was, I was reset and I was fine. But I do remember that being a particularly low point and really questioning whether I could actually juggle what I did for a living with having a family. It's tough. Yeah. I noticed one thing this year, actually, no, not last year, sorry, which never occurred to me. It never bothered me before. It never occurred to me. It never got to a point where I noticed it and it was an issue, but I really caught on to it last year. And now I cannot not feel it or see it. We are, there's never silence. The only time you actually have silence near you is when you go back to your hotel room that night, if you don't have someone else in the room and then, and then you're met with silence. Yeah. Even like being on so being on a plane everyone's like oh wow you know 12 hours on a plane but it's just even a night flight there's just noise there's engine noise even if you've got noise cancelling headphones there's the clatter of the trolley in the galley there's the person next to you wanting to get up to use the toilet there's there's just always something you never ever like you say so literally from that moment all the way through uh yeah so in your hotel room is um yeah it's the only time you can find peace and that's sometimes why I just I don't want to go out I always I always will try and make the most of where I am because I always think to myself I may never come here again uh, and I I don't want to sit in my room every night I want to go out and experience the food as you mentioned I'm mad on food <laughs> and if I'm somewhere and I've also if I flown to the other side of the world I want to blum and well make sure that I make the most of it and not just go from the airport to the hotel to the track back to the hotel back to the airport I want to actually feel like I've experienced a little bit you know there are some places we go to year in you know year out that perhaps you might feel a little bit more that you want to stay in your room because there isn't that much around so for example if you're staying in the middle of nowhere in Belgium generally there aren't that many places to go out and so I wouldn't feel guilty that I was missing out on any kind of experience and will quite happily take that week as a week where I can just chill out either eat in the hotel eat in my room catch up on my book have some sleep um, but if I'm somewhere like Japan which is my favorite place um, I'm going to blooming well make sure that I go out and I eat all the sushi and I go to the karaoke and I I just experience it because who knows when I'll be back and so I I always try and seize that opportunity to to go out and, and see a little bit of where I am if I can. No definitely and I completely abide to the certain races are for resting and certain races are for exploring that's the only way I get through the calendar it's so true. What's your resting race? 
Belgium's also a resting race, although we normally do a, a team barbecue and, and quiz night. So that's absolutely, you know, honoured. Um, I never miss that one out. But other than other than that, it's definitely a resting one. Yeah, I, and I love it, actually. We stay in the middle of nowhere. The hotel's quite quiet. There's not really anyone else that stays there. Yeah. They've got some nice grounds. Perfect. Yeah. Happy. Yeah, no problem. And you don't feel guilty. You feel that they're all the season sort of balances itself out then, I think. So if you've been out in Singapore or any of the other flyways or Austin. Austin. Um, <laughs> you can make up for or Mexico. You can make up for it and just sort of, you know, take those lovely quiet weeks and just really enjoy them and indulge in them when you can. And and you need them. You can't, you know, you can't live at that sort of level of sort of being out and eating out. It's so weird not having that autonomy when you're away from home and not being able to cook for yourself. And I love cooking and I, I love experiencing new food, but all I crave is just cooking something for myself when I'm, you know, having that control and when the control is taken out of your hands and people think it's great and it is, but it's like week in, week out, week in, week out. It gets a bit much. <laughs> That's so true. I was actually going to ask you, because in some in some respects, it's actually quite a repetitive environment that we work in whether it's day by day or race by race or year on year it actually is the same format we do we just do the same thing over and over again we just do it in different places so how do you actually keep yourself how do you keep learning how do you keep yourself interested in growing I think trying to push myself a little bit um not being quite so scared to say yes to things or assuming the responsibility for something uh, while we're away that wouldn't ordinarily be in my comfort zone and thinking no no I'm gonna I'm gonna do it I think you have to it's very easy to fall into quite a comfortable way of being because it is the same in some respects it's like an office job because you turn up you see the same people the format is exactly the same as you say every other weekend or every other week you know go to the track on a Thursday media day Friday first sessions and then we do this and then we do that and everything's got a rhythm and a timetable and it's very easy to get quite particularly when you're tired and the the days are long it is you can get a little bit demotivated I think so I think you just have to um push yourself to do things that so sometimes we'll have features and I think oh I really don't want to do that oh I don't want to do that and I think but it's something different I'm going to go and do it that's fine and actually, I'm really glad that I have because it's it's something a little bit different. It's always nice when you get something a little bit different um, at a race. And I think for me, just making the most of the travel opportunities by being away, perhaps doing a little bit of research before I go because I am so greedy and I just love food and I love reading about food and various places and recommendations, I it, depending on where we are. I might just have a couple of places up my sleeve that I think, right, if I get the opportunity, I'm definitely going to go check that out. And that, I think, gives you a sense that there's a bit, little bit more to the job than just the going to the track and going through the motions of all the sessions and the timetable. You then feel that you're having a whole experience and um, sort of going and meeting people. I've, I've, <laughs> I've met people just by messaging them on Instagram directly and saying, 
Hi, I really love your account. I see you live in Singapore. I'm coming to Singapore in September. Can I take you out for a coffee? And generally, people are very positive. And they'll respond with, oh, wow, yeah, that would be really nice. And there's a girl in Singapore who's a food writer called Sam Rice, who's from the UK, but she's lived out there for a few years with her family. And I'd followed her account for quite a while, and she wrote a book called The Midlife Kitchen, which I really liked. And I just thought, you know what, I need to see if I can meet up with her. I don't know her. We don't have any friends in common, but stuff it. I'm just going to give it a go. And I messaged her and we went and we um, we went and had lunch together. And I just arrived in Singapore about five o'clock in the morning. And uh, I was absolutely exhausted. I managed to get a couple of hours kip and then I went and met her. And it's really weird when you're meeting somebody you've never met before because you know what they look like. And we had, our lunch was about three and a half hours long. We never stopped talking. It was fascinating. And for me, I just love meeting new people and finding out about them. And I'm just nosy, basically, nosy and greedy. <laughs> that will be on my head. She was nosy and greedy. <laughs> and anyone who is kind of passionate about something, and she was really passionate about sort of food and wine, and it was just so nice to meet her. And then I met up with her again. And was it, we're in touch and I'd call her a friend now. Um, and likewise, when I went to Melbourne this year, I knew that I really wanted to chat to Kate Reed, who owns the world famous Loon Croissanterie. Amazingly generous with her time and just, yeah, come, come to the, come, you know, come to the shop, come, let's have a chat. And she only really had 10 minutes, but we chatted for ages, we had a coffee, and it was just really nice. And I get a real kick out of that. I get a real, I feel like I'm learning because I'm meeting people and I'm making the most of the extra bits of work, the downtime, if you like. Uh, so I, I then feel like I'm sort of satisfying another part of my psyche, if you know what I mean. Definitely. I yeah, it's one of my favorite things as well. I know I am never happier than when I'm learning something or discovering yeah. something new or yeah, I love it. It's the best buzz. Another aspect of our industry is that it's incredibly fast paced and by default is therefore stressful. Yeah. I wanted to check under what circumstances do you actually feel stress in what you do? And then how do you cope with it? I feel stressed on Fridays, generally. <laughs> Fridays are I know why. <laughs> mad for us where we have to get a quote or some kind of soundbite reaction from every single driver in the paddock. So 20 drivers and there's a couple of us, a couple of cameramen. And um, for some reason, the teams decide that they're going to schedule all of their media times within about 10 minutes of each other. <laughs> you know, we talk to each other. We do it on purpose, right? Pointing no fingers, of course. And I find that stressful. We, you know, we can't miss any broadcasters are relying on us. It goes onto our um, onto our website, onto Insight, so that broadcasters who aren't at the track, who don't send a crew, who don't get the opportunity to chat to drivers, can access whatever it is that they've been talking about and how their sessions have gone during the day. So I feel a real sense of pressure for that. And if I'm not doing interviews myself, because it's all hands on deck, basically, we just grab people, right, you go to Williams, you go to Renault, you go to Ferrari. Um, then I'm trying to coordinate it and make sure that we haven't missed anyone. And if we have missed anyone, I have to then go and plead, plead with the comms team. Please, please, can we have so-and-so? And, you know, trying to find that time. And it all gets turned around very, very quickly. And 
So I find Fridays, I'm always really relieved when Fridays are over. I get to Saturday and I'm like, oh, everything now is a piece of cake. Friday's our stressful day. Um, and then we have other things to do after that as well. So it's quite a long day too. So you're very, very tired. Um, how I cope with stress. I think I'm just, my, my life at home is very different to my life away. And deliberately so. I think I've slowed down massively when I get home. So I can be really full on on a race weekend and physically and mentally exhausted. And then when I get on that plane to come home, I sort of do like a mental switch and I start thinking about home. I start thinking about my family. I start thinking about what I'm going to cook. And I think about my week. And because I am at home in between races, um, I love nothing more than cooking, baking, I've got three chickens. I love them. I'm a frustrated farmer, basically. I've got an allotment. I've got raised beds in my back garden in a greenhouse where I grow veg and flowers. And I've been like this my whole life. <laughs> and I find it really helps. I sort of massively mentally and physically step away from the travel, the jet lag, the busyness, the noise, the constant, constant, constant noise and movement. And I just, I can really kind of switch off and be at home. It sometimes makes it difficult to then get back into it. It takes yeah. me a day or two to get back into the rhythm of it. There is a rhythm to a race week. And if I've had too nice a time, and depending on which races I've got, um, if there's too big a gap, sometimes that can be really hard. And I can find myself at the airport almost forgetting what to do. I stand and look at my suitcase and think I've forgotten how to pack I don't know what I'm doing and then and then similarly it's quite hard to switch off when I get home and of course I could be jet lagged and really 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 tired but my son doesn't care whether he just wants to see me he wants to play he wants to tell me about his day and I am exhausted and just thinking about bed because I got no sleep on the 12 hour overnight flight but I have to be up I have to be on, I have to be mum, I have to be, that's lovely darling, that's amazing. <laughs> so I think just being really conscious when I'm home sort of negates the stresses of being away and just trying to slow down a bit. Listening to you, I'm realising that I do that in the sense that my house is incredibly quiet. Once I'm in the house and that the door is locked, there is no noise. It's that thing of, again, of finding the peace. And although I probably won't sleep in, you know, other than just dealing with exhaustion and kind of just sleeping to that, I'll I'll go back into a different rhythm, but I will go back, go into a rhythm to make sure that I don't just slide into a deep, deep hole. <laughs> just yeah. so far and sort of, you know, never recovering. But it is the walking in, close the door, and it's just peace. Yeah. Because even if you're at a race and you're not physically doing something, you're just surrounded by people and requests and noise and you think somewhere in Europe where you've got all the support sessions going on there's never actually a quiet moment on track once the race weekend gets underway it's you know a really packed timetable somewhere like you know France or Spain with all the support races it's you there's just noise all the time and it's so nice to the point where I always take music away with me and I take like a little bluetooth speaker and quite often I don't use it in my room because I just want that sense of peace. I just want to, just nothing, just silence, no noise, nothing, not even music. And yet when I'm home, I have the radio on pretty much all day. 
Yes, so do I. At the moment, I have the radio on every single day, all the time. And actually, another thing that I noticed is when I am in my hotel room away at races, I never, ever switch the TV on. No, I don't. Never. I don't think I've never, ever put a TV on. When people say, oh, you know, I was watching this last night, and I think, what? No, never. Read. I always read. Yes, yeah, I read or, you know, in fairness, I'm more than likely I'll have something on my iPad if I want to watch something, yeah. but um, other tablets are available. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but but basically, yeah, I just, I never, I, I don't even know where the remote is. I couldn't tell you. No. I've never switched a telly on in a hotel room before. I get really annoyed if I can't find the off switch for it because you get that really annoying red standby light and I'm there with a sock trying to cover it over, just trying to... Oh, oh, you just you know you just need it pitch black don't you you just need to get yeah. sleep and to switch off and get the uh, get the camera guys to give you the gaffer tape that's what you want yes, you switch exactly. it on there yeah yeah oh yeah you definitely need to do that <laughs> coming up to the last few questions the one I really because I always think about who who's going to be listening to this and I'm kind of hoping it's the young girl who's thinking about coming to work in motorsport but isn't quite sure and is going to listen to what we're chatting about and thinks actually I think I can do this or at least you know I've gotten a couple of ideas of how I could get started so you know we might not be able to help young carters get on the track but we can definitely help more people more more women get into the sport and all the other jobs that we're doing and one that I wanted to ask you is what advice would you actually give to somebody who's thinking about working in motorsport I think the way that I arrived at my job is probably not a bad way to go about it and that's even if you're working in a job that you're not particularly happy with explore those side hustles you know do those extra little things if something interests you if you're if you want to get into motorsport journalism you know set up a blog do a blog write about stuff you know see if you can do interviews with people kind of practice your craft maybe start um not necessarily formula one but there's so many racing series you know throughout the world and that are slightly easier to get into and it might be perhaps you're interested in doing social media why don't you go to your local kind of club racing find a team that you like and offer to do their social media for free just to kind of get experience while you're doing something else um I think that there wasn't such a thing as being an intern when I sort of started out really that's a much more common thing was work experience where you didn't get paid and it's really hard and you have to be careful that you're not sort of exploited by people by doing internships and make sure that you're not just free labor but just learn just make be bold just make contact with people that you admire just send them a really polite message just saying oh hi you know i love your work i'm really inspired by you i wonder if you could spare 10 minutes just for a, a chat maybe you know offer to buy them a coffee and say I'd just love to maybe just talk to you about how you kind of got to where you are and 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 just kind of learn from them but if you have an idea for something see if you can make it happen and then just sort of it, it doesn't have to be a linear route mine wasn't a linear route at all I when I was working at the radio station in well I finished university and I went back to Coventry not knowing what the hell I was going to do I had this media production qualification and I just didn't know what to, and I worked in the bar again living back home with my mum no idea what I was going to do 
And um, I happened to bump into somebody from the radio station where I'd done my work experience. They're like, oh, have you finished uni now? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm home. I've graduated. What are you doing? Um, not much at the moment, you know. Oh, well, funny, we need somebody on the breakfast show. Why don't you go and make an appointment with the programme controller and go and have a chat and see if it's something you'd be interested in? I was like, okay, well, I could do that, I could do that. So I knew the programme controller, had a chat with him, finding out what the role was. And it was being one of those um, <laughs> uh, girls that kind of went out and did outside broadcast in like a four by four and just kind of ended with a, a girl called Nadia, the two of us. And I did that and it was brilliant. And it was really, really early mornings. But I was finished by lunchtime. And what happened was that the guy who used to schedule all of the adverts and all of the promos for the radio station for the first time in about 15 years decided he wanted to go on holiday. And everyone went, oh God, nobody knows how to do his job. Oh no, what are we gonna do? So they said, Amy, you don't work afternoons. Do you fancy learning how to do Leighton's job? And then you could you know, help us out just while he goes away for a couple of weeks. And I said, yeah, okay. So I learned a brand new skill that had absolutely nothing to do with anything that I was interested in, which was scheduling all of the, all of the, you know, the adverts that people paid for and making sure they were in the right time slots and editing them and getting them all together and making sure the music was right and cleared. And, you know, and it was great because I was learning something new and I was getting paid extra, which at the time was all I really cared about. And then I kind of carried on helping him when he came back from his one holiday in 15 years. And as it happened, the job that came up at KISS FM was for, you're called a traffic coordinator because you're coordinating all the commercial traffic. A job came up for an assistant traffic coordinator at KISS FM. And had I not learned how to do his job, I would not have been able to apply for that job. And I got that job and I moved to London and I lived in a flat share. And that is how I got into KISS FM. So it's not always the most straightforward route and the linear route. There are sometimes little side turns and never dismiss those side turns because you don't know where they're going to lead and you don't know who you're going to meet and you don't know what experience you're going to pick up along the way. And it might even change your total direction and you decide, actually, I don't want to do that anymore. I'm going to go do this. Or it might just get you into London, get you into a national radio station get you into meeting people, get you into doing co-commentary for football, get you to blag your way into the Palladium for the Jordan launch, get you to a job in Formula One. You don't know, you literally don't know. And I just don't think you should be dismissive of anything that comes your way. And you should always be open. And nothing has to last forever. We're so far removed from that generation of a one job for life. People have several jobs, several careers over the course of their lifetime. And if something doesn't work out and it's not for you, there's no shame in it. Just move on and do something else. But I would say be bold and also always, always be nice. Just be nice. We've had so many people come work for us over the years and they rubbed people up the wrong way because they just haven't been nice people and they haven't listened. And um, Davina McCall has a brilliant phrase. And she always says, always give more than is expected. And I think that that's a pretty good mantra to live by. If somebody needs help, help them out. Just don't always expect the end goal to be where you want to be. Just be nice and be helpful. And people will. I've worked with people who have gone, well, I'm not doing that. That's not my job. And the person that's asked them to do that has then changed their opinion of that person and how much they're willing to help them 
get to where they do want to be. And so there's no harm in being nice. Just be nice. Finally, Amy, my very last question. What are you looking forward to? What am I looking forward to in life or? Anything, anything. I am looking forward to exploring the foodie side a little bit more alongside Formula One and um, kind of setting up a bit of a website where I talk to people who are somehow involved in food, again, being nosy and greedy, and people like Kate, who I spoke to in Melbourne, and sort of really exploring that. In Formula One, there's such an international paddock, as you know, and people have got such a wealth of stories and anecdotes, and a lot of them surround food, amazingly, um, either from home, their home food. Rosa from Mercedes was telling me about her dad's churros recipe. I want that recipe. I want to know all about it. I'm really curious. So I'm hoping that alongside my F1 work, I can sort of explore this other side. So I'm looking forward to putting that into action. I'm being very slow. I'm building a website and it's um, very slow in coming together, but it will be called F1 Foodie and Friends because I'm an F1 foodie and I have lots of friends who are in and around motorsport and have brilliant food stories to tell and I'm looking forward to hearing them all and I'm just looking forward to seeing people again and catching up in the paddock over a coffee. Well I can't read I can't wait to read the website and I cannot wait to see you for a coffee. Oh I can't wait either or a glass of rosé. Yeah not in the paddock but yeah. (laughs) I mean let's be honest. Ah, oh, there's nothing quite like ending on the highest of pitches for a great podcast. Sorry about that. It's very exciting to talk to all my friends and I'm loving their story. Thank you to Amy for being such a kind guest and telling stories in such a beautiful way. It was an absolute pleasure to listen to the many, many things that she's done throughout her motorsport career. As ever, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe via your favourite podcast platform and leave us a review if that function is available on that platform. It helps people find us, but it also means so much and you know I'll be reading all of them. You can also get in touch directly if you'd like via my Instagram account, which is Pandia, P-A-N-D-E-A. Thank you very much for listening and speak to you next week. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.